know if she was wearing a preacher out or warming a preacher up. (laughs) We might need a little Holy Ghost power to tackle today's topic, huh? I heard some gasp in the room. (laughs) The only thing funner than watching Karen Batiste minister in that way is to watch Carla Johnson's face behind her just beaming. That is love. That is relationship right there. (laughs) Gracious God indeed, we need that Holy Ghost power today. We need that Holy Ghost to surround us and hold us as we make ourselves open and available to you for this very sensitive topic. We ask that you would indeed be the ground for which we stand. We ask for you to minister us, guide us, lead us as we transcend ourselves to the spiritual issues involved. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. So, 1982, yes, I'm dating myself, there was a movie called Best Friends with Goldie Hawn and Burt Reynolds. Do I have any fans? <laughs> There's. <laughs> There's a lot of incredible funny things about this movie, but basically it's a couple. Burt Reynolds and Goldie Hawn make the perfect couple. They have the perfect relationship. They're great working partners. They're great lovers. They're great friends. They're great roommates. They share values and laughs and even a dog. And then they go and confuse the whole thing by going and getting married. So we see them, and they go up to the justice of the peace, and it's in this moment they're just about to recite their vows, and they realize they have a communication problem. But we're grateful that it's not in them. It is actually in their justice of the peace. The justice of the peace says right before, forgive me for my English is not so good. And so as he begins to give them their vows, he gets to the last line, I thee endow. And what they hear in his broken English, I thee endo. So they both, when they get to that moment, ask, can you repeat that? You know, and they try a couple times, but finally, in frustration and just to give honor to the moment, they say, with heart and passion, with all that they have, I de-endo till death do us part. (laughs) It's really a funny moment in the movie because it is these vows that we make and we go into them with that passion and with all of that love in our heart, but... They're so easy to wiggle their way out of, they might as well be in a foreign language, right? It is funny to to know and yet hard to realize that truly in our society today, most of our relationships with our friends, our peers, our partners and our friends are based on the principle of bargaining. We've become very familiar with What's good for you is good for me. I'll scratch your back, you scratch mine. And we base our relationships on this thing. And we contract them out and we do these things together. And you know, nobody says it like Mama Horton from Chicago. And now, ladies and gentlemen, the keeper of the keys, the countess of the clique, the mistress of murderer's row, matron Mama Morton. Ask any of the chickies in my pen They'll tell you I'm the biggest mother hen I love them all and all of them love me Because the system works, the system called reciprocity 
ourselves more than anything else. We laugh at this character because we know that so many times we have placed our very faith on this flawed principle of bargain. And our relationships as such many times are based on the flimsiness of the bargain. We find ourselves, when we base the start of our relationships on this premise, we find ourselves ultimately in quabbles about the contract. And there's discontent. And then all of a sudden our dirty laundry is aired everywhere. In relationships and spousal relationships, we call this mess divorce. And this indeed is a very sensitive topic, but this is what I'll tell you. That this is a topic that we have wrestled with as a people for thousands upon thousands of years. This is part of the human condition. And so before I, we go into this a little bit more, just know that Every and each and every time you look at a society that has wrestled with it, they came to the same conclusion. Indeed, there are simply times it is the most loving thing to do. And so you will see that we've all wrestled with this. It is part of, of being a human. But what we know about our God is God meets us in our humanness, meets us in our condition, and that's where we find that redemptive and incredible grace of God that brings beauty from ashes. So if we go all the way back to... Uh, I don't know, beginning of time for us, I guess. If we go all the way back to the beginning of our Bible, we'll see thousands of years ago, one of the first places it was dealt with is in Deuteronomy 24, the fifth, chap fifth book of the Bible, when Moses is setting out the law, the Mosaic law. And in this place, we see right there that Moses is making a provision for divorce. But in this provision, in Deuteronomy 24, Moses <clears throat> says something that's quite radical for his day. He says... If you are to cast away um, your wife, if you are to divorce your wife and send her from the tribe, you must uh, give her, for one, you must find indecency in her, that's what it says, and then you must go through the legal process of giving her a certificate for divorce. Now that still sounds barbaric to us, that he can decide what is indecent and send her away with a certificate of divorce. But in this time and in this place, this was a radical move for women's rights. Because in this, if you want to set this first time that we look at this, you should always look at scripture in the context of which it's laid as well as the cultural context for which it's said. And in this day and age, in the ancient Near East, women were property. And so men really did treat um, women as property and very easily we could be dismissed. And, so in this time and in this place, this was a radical statement and move for women's rights. Now fast forward a few thousand years and we find ourselves to uh, Matthew chapter 5 where Jesus is cashing in on the, on the uh, topic of divorce. <clears throat> and again, I want us to set it in cultural context as well as context for which it was said. Chapter 5 is where Jesus is in the middle of his Sermon on the Mount and he begins with the Beatitudes and then he goes into this little conversation about the law of the prophets and uh, and then he tackles personal relationships he goes into a dissertation about personal relationships and before he says it he says 
um, I've come not to abolish the law and the prophets, but to fulfill. And then each time he introduces a new topic of personal relationships, he says, for you have heard what I say. And when he's doing that, he's saying, you have heard it in the law, you have heard it taught in your synagogues and your places of worship, but I say. So he's trying to take us to a new place. And if you look at the verse right before he tackles personal relationships, you'll get real insight to what he's trying to ask us and what he's um, taking us to. He, in verse 20 of chapter 5 of Matthew, right before personal relationships, he says, for I say unto you, that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you shall not enter the realm of God or the kingdom of heaven. What Jesus is uh, saying to us is, I'm saying to you, this is what it was written and this is what you have been taught, but I'm telling you, you need to surpass, you need to transcend even the, the, the law and the code to the spiritual issues that are at stake in our relationships with each other. And he goes so far as to say, when you enter the spiritual nature of our relationships with each other, you will participate in bringing and creating heaven on earth. You will be a part of the redemptive plan of God. So our relationships with each other are that important. And he covers like six topics, murder, anger, adultery, divorce, vows, forgiveness, Revenge, love of neighbor. He covers a lot of topics. We are going to cover <laughs> this one, adultery and divorce. Now, I, so I laid the context of where these, the scripture comes from, but let me lay the cultural context. In Jesus' time, there were two predominant religious leaders and religious thought. There was Rabbi Hillel and Rabbi Shammai. These two were, I mean, they had their own schools of disciples. They were the major way of thinking. This is the way people were following. And they both died in the year 10, so they were very prominent figures at the time of Jesus. And what's interesting about Hillel and Shammai is they disagreed on almost all points of discussion and interpretation of the religious law. <laughs> so Jesus is actually chiming in on that particular debate, so to speak. And so um, Rabbi Hillel, just to give you some insight, is known for um, the Mishnah and the Talmud. He is known to have broke the law down into one nutshell, which is the golden rule. He says, you can basically fulfill all of the law if you treat another as you would want to be treated, the golden rule. And so, as you might imagine, he's the more progressive of the rabbis of the Jewish thought of the day, and Shammai was the more conservative of the time. And, as you might also predict, Jesus sided with Hillel on almost all topics, except divorce and adultery. Shammai and Hillel had two opposing points of view on the interpretation of Deuteronomy 24. They disagreed on what is indecent and cause to dismiss your wife. What was indecency in, in her? Now, Shammai said, Indecency could only be infidelity. It would only be adultery. And that's the only terms for which you could send away your wife. And you must give her that certificate of divorce even then. And so Shammai is coming out on that court. Hillel, Hillel says, if she burns your toast, if she burns your food, you can send her away. Now, you might think that's funny. But in 1955, we come really close to aligning with that particular thought. Now, before I go into this a fancy little article on how to be a good wife, 
I will um, say that Snoops has neither been able to validate nor discard this particular article that supposedly is from a 1955 economic textbook. It's called How to Be a Good Wife. And so this, welcome to our culture and our day. And listen up, wives, and you know who you are. <laughs> Step one to being a good wife. Have dinner ready. Most men are hungry when they come home, and the prospects of a good meal are part of a warm welcome. Step two, take 15 minutes to rest before he arrives home. home. Touch up your makeup and put a ribbon in your hair and be fresh looking. Be a little gay and a little more interesting. <laughs> like I said, you wives know who I'm talking about. And they... And this article goes on, clear away the clutter, prepare the children, minimize the noise, don't complain, make him comfortable, listen to him, but the real doozy of them all, they say for number 10, don't ask him any questions about his actions or his judgment. Remember, he's the master of the house and you have no right to question him. Ugh. Cast that baby off. So... Thousands of years later, <laughs> we have come to the place of Rabbi Hillel that don't burn anybody's toast, that we really can dismiss our vows as quickly as we make them. But Jesus is cashing in on this, and he's saying to you and to us and to that time, no, 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 you really must have good cause. Your commitments are sacred. And he says, you know, you must give that certificate of divorce. But here's what I want you to understand, that Jesus is not only cashing in to this debate, this religious debate, he's cashing in on a justice issue. You see, in his day as well, women had no rights. They had no forms of means. And so if they were sent off, they too were in a very uh, abusive very precarious positions. And so basically what was happening in his day, what he was chiming in on was the justice issue of his day where women were being abused by this particular issue, by divorce. And so he was cashing in on the cultural issue of his day. And I think that uh, we can also see that we are in a time when relationships can come and go, and we as gay and lesbian partners as well know that it can be as easy as saying I'm done. And so what I think Jesus was saying into that day and into ours is keep your covenants, for your covenants will keep you. I think what he's offering us is the idea that we are to surpass all of that and to see each other not as property or things to be owned or manipulated. We're not to look at the power structures or the legal issues of the day. We're to look at the heart matters, the spiritual issues of, of each other. And, you know, we know so well that he was dealing with the justice issue for how quickly he levels the playing field. Before he speaks about divorce, he says, for if anyone holds lust in their heart, they have committed adultery. So very quickly he draws the men in and he levels the playing field and he says, everyone is at stake here. And then remember, he's saying if we can transcend if we can surpass the righteousness of the law and the scribes and all this stuff and get to the spiritual issues, we will participate in the redemptive 
an incredible gift of God, the reconciling love of each other. So what Jesus is saying to us is this shouldn't be the destination point of our relationships. It should be the starting place, that which we ground each other. And in case you think I shouldn't be listening to this because the marriage laws don't protect me, the basis of the word divorce is to send away, to cast away, or to walk away. And so, again, in our relationships to our friends, our peers, our partners, all situations where we have, are doing that, we are involved in this issue. And Jesus is saying, look at each other and see each other how I see you. What Jesus is inviting us to here is God-like relationships, how God sees us, how Christ embraces us. And the best biblical concept that we can come up to for this is the word, it's a Hebrew word, hesed. It is a biblical concept that's throughout our scripture that basically says this is how God loves us. And this is how we're to love each other. And this hesed word is used a variety of times, and every time it's used, we kind of translate it differently, but it, it means such things as mercy, compassion, steadfast love, covenant loyalty, deep commitment. These are all the different ways that it's translated. And basically, God has entered a covenant with us, and God walks with us, and we're to find ways to walk with each other. But again, I want to say, that at times, hesed and to be of hesed may mean to do, to send each other away or to walk away and make the best of what you have. Um, the best example and illustration that I could give of this biblical concept is found in the story of Ruth and Naomi. Naomi um, and her husband were in Bethlehem and there was a famine at the time. And she was, they decided to take off to a foreign land and a forbidden land, actually, Moab. And that's where her uh, husband and their two sons uh, began to reside. And the two sons take up Moabite wives. Now, this right here uh, compromised their family lineage for, even though it wasn't forbidden to marry these women, these women would never be allowed into the court of God and, you know, into the realm, of, you know, I guess what they considered the place of worship. And so, so this was already happening, and it's kind of a miracle that this is even in our scriptural text because it's such an incredible story, but it is one that is born of tragedy. Um, as they're living together and they're making their family together, the three men die. And so Ruth and the two Moabite women, I mean Naomi and the two Moabite women, Ruth and Orpah, who were married to her sons, found themselves in this tragedy. And the scripture tells us that Naomi shows Ruth and Orpah hesed and, and sends them away. Through tears running down her face, she knows that she is under great persecution and is feeling very uh, persecuted and alone, but yet she knows in that moment the most loving thing she can do for these two foreign women before she goes back to Bethlehem is to send them and keep them in their homeland and their families of origin. That might be the only hope they have to survive. And it says that Orpah does so in response to that very loving um, offer and stays with her family of origin. Ruth, on the other hand, the scripture tells us she clings to Naomi. She clings to Naomi and she then begins to recite what I think is the most poignant and poetic scriptures of Hesed. Where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord do so to me and more, if anything but death parts us. Hesed. She responds to Naomi's hesed 
with hesed. She says, where else am I to go? I will stay by your side. And Naomi says, why? Don't you see, it's, this is a tough deal. And when we enter the city side by side, we're going to be persecuted and people are not going to understand. And the scripture tells us they didn't. But they go off to Bethlehem. When she says, when the scripture says that Ruth clings to Naomi, it gives us a brand new lens of faith and family. For Genesis 2.24 says, when a man leaves his family, he will cling to his wife. And here Ruth clings to Naomi and gives us a brand new lens for which to see what God sees as family and faith, commitment as hesed. And so they go to Bethlehem, and this story has such a beautiful ending, and it illustrates perfectly what Jesus is saying, that hesed, God takes these, when mutual, mutual hesed is, it occurs, God takes it and forms glue for which to bring redemption to the world. The ending of the story is they get to Bethlehem, and Ruth begins to you know, go out to the fields and just take what's left over, and she's keeping them alive this way. And Naomi realizes that there's a man named Boaz in town who has, seems to have some compassion, and um, she s sends Ruth to go to him. And Ruth does, and in doing so, he sees their love, their commitment, and he responds to their hesed with hesed. And he, and he takes Ruth as his wife, and in doing so, he brings community identity and financial security to these two women. And he also seeds the future of a new promise. For you see, Ruth bears a son, Obed. And as she hands, the story ends with her handing this child over to Naomi and Naomi nurses. It's the most beautiful story of family and faith and hesed. And it's the most beautiful story of God's redemptive plan as we live this out with each other. For you see, Obed... Ruth and her hesed, she saved, this Moabite woman saved the very lineage of our King David. She is heir to Jesus the Christ. Covenant people of God, this is sensitive stuff, but what Jesus is saying to us, keep your covenants and your covenants will keep you, and sometimes that means different things to us. But covenant people of God, let God meet you there in your humanness, and move to that which is most divine by being a people of great hesed. Amen. Amen.